All right, so we're going to go ahead and start our class tonight. We wanted to make a couple quick announcements. Thursday, tomorrow at 10, bus will be leaving for the senior ministry to go to Hallover, and then there's lunch at the Hoffman's table afterwards. That's correct, Sue? Yeah. And then also we wanted to remind you that we're still trying to collect 200 boxes of spaghetti, 200 jars of spaghetti sauce. So we've been discussing the New Testament church. That's, I'm going to do that a couple times probably as I get used to this. Um, and we, got, we had a difficult discussion because the first part of Acts chapter 2, there's a, lot, there's a lot going on. There's a huge experience. And that was really where we got stuck last week in that experience that was happening on the day of Pentecost, um, the amazing thing that was happening through the apostles that not only did everybody um, see and experience that way, but they also heard in their own ears. So they were having a personal experience as well. Today, tonight we're going to get into what I think is actually the easier and more um, applicable part of the chapter. Um, so I, I'm, I'm looking forward to that. I think there should be a lot of good discussion tonight. But before we get started, let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and, and Lord, we are grateful for this time where we can just gather, where we can just gather as the body of Christ. Father, and encourage each other, lift each other up, build each other up. Father, teach each other, share wisdom with one another. God, it's an amazing thing that happens in these discussions, uh, just with all the different ways to look at Scripture and think about Scripture Father, we want to zone right into what you want us to, to say, what you want us to see, what you want to, how you want us to even interpret your word, God. So we, we ask that you join us, and I know you do, every, every single time, God, but we ask that you just be with us, guide our conversation tonight. Father, as we discuss your word in, in such an important part of the, of the Bible, Acts chapter 2, where the New Testament church really starts and takes root and, and starts to outbreak and affect their community and the lives of so many people along the way. Father, I pray that as we look at it, we think about our own church right here at North Brevard, this part of the body of Christ that we all serve at, that we all um, attend and want to see grow and, and continue to become more and more healthy an active member of the body of Christ. God, we thank you so much for Jesus. Without Jesus, there would be no church. Without Jesus, there would be no hope. But even before time began, you always had the plan to redeem us, restore us, and save us from ourselves through the sacrifice he made on the cross. God, we're grateful for your love. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right, so last week we went through a bunch of this scripture, actually, which was really good. I think it's probably more scripture than we usually get through on a Wednesday night. But before we get too far into it, I just wanted to show you, because this is the first sermon, if you will, of the New Testament church, and we kind of glossed over it last week as we were just trying to get through some scriptures and think about what was going on. 
I really wanted to slow down for a second and show you the three things, the three major things that Peter said in his sermon that really define the New Testament church. So the first thing he says, and we, we discussed this a little bit at, at length, but the first thing he says, and the most important part of it, is that the Holy Spirit was going to be poured out on all those who believe in Jesus Christ. So that's the first thing he says. That's the first big difference from what they would have thought because of how it used to work and what is happening. He also, again, shows us um, that this is not a new concept. And just like uh, we try to do here, we try to show you every single thing that we say, everything that we teach comes straight from the Word. This is something that if they were studying the prophecies, looking for the Messiah, they would have been waiting for this moment because it was already written about, and that was about 400 years before Jesus ever came. The second thing is he compares Jesus to David. So we know that through the beginning of the Gospels, we know that Jesus was from the lineage of David. But there was differences in opinion on interpretation. And we know that because there were different groups that even oversaw the Israelites during the time of Jesus' life. And they had very different opinions on interpretation. One of the ones we point out all the time was the difference between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Sadducees believed in no resurrection. They didn't believe in resurrection. So there was differences of opinions and even how to interpret scriptures at their time. So Peter is trying to take a group of people, and don't forget, this is how it started, a lot of different people from a lot of different places from a lot of different culture. So there's going to be a lot of different opinions. There's going to be a lot of different interpretations on uh, the scripture that they've been able to read in their life. So he's trying to bring it all together for them. The second thing he says is the quote from David. And that quote from David is that there's not going to be any corruption on Jesus' body. And we discussed that last time too, how important it was for him to raise on the third day because by the fourth day corruption starts and this is where that comes from, Psalm 16. And then he says he has confidence that David never rose from the dead. Nobody here thinks that David rose from the dead. His body did see corruption and decay, so some people at this point in time were interpreting that as something that was going to happen with David. Not David, his bloodline, his descendant. And we see that um, in this scripture. The third thing that was said really quickly, trying to go through this part fast, He points out this specific scripture and he says, the Lord said to my Lord, and this is David quoting him, you know, this is David who he's quoting. The Lord said to my Lord. In other words, there was going to be a Lord that came from David. And this is the big moment. This is the big moment. It's the reminder that there was going to be a Messiah. It's the reminder that they were waiting on someone. The problem is, is everybody was waiting on what they thought was something different than Jesus. They were waiting on someone who was going to come and elevate Israel. They were waiting on um, someone who was going to change their way of life in a very physical way. They weren't realizing that it was something spiritual. But the Lord said to my Lord, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
So he says, not only is he the Messiah, but he's the Lord. So those are the three points, the three major points that Peter uses. And he says a bunch of other things that aren't recorded as well. But those are the three major points that Peter uses to explain how and, and what this New Testament church is supposed to be about. It's supposed to be about receiving the Holy Spirit. It's supposed to be about a Messiah that is risen from the dead whose body does not see corruption, and it's supposed to be about that Messiah becoming the Lord or, if you will, the head of the church. Those are the three main points. Then he says in verse 36, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. So he, he drops the bomb. He drops the statement that everybody is, they're having this crazy experience because they're all hearing in their own language. They're seeing the verification through scripture on what they should have been looking for. And Jesus says, it, I mean, Peter says, it was Jesus. And he came to the earth and he did all these wonderful things. And he taught us all these amazing things. And he crucified him. There were people at the time that didn't understand this. We find this again repeated in Hebrews where the Hebrew writer says that Jesus was a high priest from the order of Melchizedek. So I just wanted to point that out too. That's where it comes from. He doesn't end there. Verse 4, there are even people today that will tell you that that scripture is not talking about Jesus it's pretty obvious. So after he tells them and, and proves to them the Messiah, after they've had this experience and after he's told them now that they've put Jesus Christ, who was the Messiah, on the cross, it says they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Can you hear the despair in their voice? What does that statement mean? Cut to the heart. If I get out a picture, let me know. I don't know where I'm allowed to go yet. All right. What does that statement mean, cut to the heart? What is it? Go ahead, Doug. To me, early on when he said, these people stuck around for seven weeks after Pentecost, certain the faithful, and Peter says, the Christ came and you killed him. They're there to honor God. They're faithful. I mean, if you heard the message that I'm, if I came to hear the message I'm faithful, but I heard the message that I killed the Son of God, it would just take everything out of me. And I, that's how I look at being cut to the heart. Yeah. There was a moment of emotion. There was a moment of despair. There was a moment of what are we going to do? What are we going to do now? What would you call that? If you had to put that into one word, what would you call that? They were seeking? Remorse. I'm going to use a different word myself. I'm going to say they were convicted. They were convicted. It's the same response that happens to all of us and every one of us as, before we get baptized. It's that same mo emotional response that comes with it. You realize, just like they realized, 
and, and we know even through a better context of scripture now that it was my sin, it was your sin, it was the whole world's sin, it was every single person who ever lived sin that nailed Jesus to the cross. And when you realize that, there's a conviction that happens to you. There's an emotional response that comes from that moment, from that realization. There is a despair. Once you really accept the fact that you are sinful, that there is something to be said about right and wrong, that there is something to be said about honoring the word of God, there is a conviction that happens. And that's what I see right there is they were cut to the heart. They were convicted by what Peter said and they knew they needed to do something about it. But they didn't know what to do. They had just killed the Messiah. Verse 38, probably one of the most famous scriptures in the whole New Testament. And I want you to realize this. This is the reason why so many people quote this scripture, and you've heard it quoted so many times in your life, because this is the moment of response for the beginning of the New Testament church. This is their moment. And Peter lays it out extremely clear. And I'm not going to try to make it any um, less clear than it could be made tonight. I, I'm, I'm going to try to make it as clear as possible. He says two things. Two things. He says, repent and be baptized. And then he says, what? How many? Everyone. Everyone, not some, everyone. Baptism is part of the conversion for a New Testament Christian that is going to be a member of the New Testament church. Baptism is part of the conversion. You can't get around it. It's the first two things he says in the discussion. What shall we do? Now that we've done this, now that we understand everything's come full circle, what shall we do? He says, repent. Turn from your old ways. Turn from your ways of following yourself and doing whatever you want at the whim of your own will. And turn back to God. Repent from your ways of acting like your choices, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> the way you look at life, the way you experience life, the way you understand life. Repent from that way that leads you to the places that God directly speaks about in his word. That's repenting. That's, uh, again, we've talked about this, and I'm going to keep saying it because I think it's extremely important. This isn't the only time you repent in your Christian walk. You repent on the regular. It's not a one-time deal. Forget about it and just go live your life. We repent on the regular. We find ourselves in places at different times in our life where we're in this moment of despair and we say, how did we get here? And we repent and we change our ways and we come back to God. Extremely important part of the process, but the baptism is also an extremely important part of the process. Let me ask you a question. Why did Jesus get baptized? To fulfill all righteousness? What's that mean? Carl? If a prophet speaks, you have to listen to him. 
And so because the prophet was speaking Jesus to fulfill all righteousness, it had to be baptized. Okay. So you're saying because, because of what John was saying. Okay. Was Jesus repenting of his sin? He didn't have any sin to repent over. Was Jesus, being the Son of God, did he um, need to be baptized to receive the Holy Spirit? It certainly seems like the Holy Spirit descended upon him in that moment, didn't it? Here's the tricky part. He's the son of God from birth. He's united to God from birth. God announces him at his baptism. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. And the spirit, the Holy Spirit, descends upon him in the form of a dove. Now, I'm not brave enough to tell you that Jesus went 30 years of his life without the Holy Spirit. But it certainly is made a distinction in the scripture and God made a distinction in this moment to where you saw baptism and what did it connect to? The Holy Spirit. Even with Jesus. So even, even with Jesus, you saw this connection. So this is what I want you to see. He says, repent and be baptized. Jesus did it, in my opinion, to set the standard. To show the way. As William says all the, th all the time, to show the more excellent way. But if you take repent and be baptized and you look at it also from the standpoint of, he says, two things will happen. Your sin will be forgiven. Your sin cannot, this is, this is important. Your sin cannot be forgiven. You cannot make Jesus Christ your Lord and Savior until you surrender to it. That doesn't mean throw up the white flag and let it run rampant in your life. That means understanding the fact that I will not overcome my sin without the help of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit. And in the same way, and I can show you other scriptures, I didn't put them on here because I don't want to get stuck in one area for too long. But in the same way, baptism is expressly connected to receiving the Holy Spirit in a lot of different places in the New Testament. So repent and change, change the way you live, change the way you look at life, change the way you approach life, and be baptized. What's baptism represent? Burial. The word means to, yeah, to immerse, to plunge, to be dunked. That's what it means. And there, we can get into a heavy discussion on that if you want to one day, but you are being buried. You are being buried. You are, it is a burial of your old self and a resurrection of your new self. It is a burial of the man that is corrupted by sin, that is dead and gone now, and a resurrection of life for the man that is 
been given the Holy Spirit, had their sin removed, and is looking to do the work of the kingdom of God. It's a death to a life. It's a significant change. Anybody want to say something to that? I was nervous this might turn into a little bit too preachy tonight. <clears throat> Did you want to say something, Mike? Very close to what John was preaching. Uh, he had a, a bunch of Pharisees come to him and he says, I'm not going to baptize you. you. You go and show fruits of, of changing, of, of being. Yeah. So that's your friends. And then the baptism is a thing called tevula. And it was the, the washing, the dipping under of people to get rid of certain sins. So the fact that this is close is good. The extra thing is the gift of the Holy Spirit that yeah. makes it special. That's right. That's where it changes from what John was preaching to Jesus's, to the, to the change that Jesus made. That's right. Anybody else? And we know this one pretty good, though, don't we? Chuck, go ahead. Yeah, I don't know if you want to get into this text or not, but it says the gift of the Holy Spirit, not a gift of the Holy Spirit. And yeah. that's probably another whole discussion, but. Well, uh, yeah. Because it ties into 1 Corinthians 13, as far as. It definitely does. It definitely does. We probably, I, I said last week that we probably should do a study after this on the spiritual gifts, and maybe even compare that in that discussion. But it, it's the gift of the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not, it, I think it's real important to understand this. I always look at the gifts of the Holy Spirit and the fruits of the Spirit, and I say it's, you might have some of those things naturally. You might um, naturally be good, a good teacher because you can study the Word and remember a lot. You might naturally be an um, extremely caring person. You might naturally be an extreme, extremely giving person. There's a lot of things we are naturally, we naturally have in us. But I would also be real careful to ever say that you can't grow gifts in your life, that you can't grow fruits to, in, in your life. So the gift of the Holy Spirit makes all that possible, in my opinion. Go ahead, Chuck. Himself said, I have to be. That's right. Because I'm going to send a helper. That's right. He will help you. Yeah. That was the spirit. That's right. They still didn't understand what he was talking about, but he, he prophesied a quite lengthy discussion he had with the disciples to say, I have to go. You don't understand. I have to die. I have to leave. So he'd come. Mm -hmm. That's right. Mike, would you want to say something else? No? Okay. Anybody else? Did you just raise your hand, Chad, trying to try to get me right there? What was that? No? Oh, okay. All right. So repent, be baptized, forgiveness of your sins, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And that goes for, one more time, how many people? Everyone. No one was excused from that. There was no reason not to be. And again, I will also remind you, and challenge you to look through the New Testament and find every single conversion that happens in the New Testament and find one where baptism is not present. In those personal relationships, those personal conversions, find one where baptism is not present. You'll shock me if you do. I've read it a bunch. Verse 39, for the promise is for 
You and for, and for all who are far off, right? Everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. So this is a promise for us 2,000 years later. This isn't a promise that's going to end at some certain point in time. This is a promise for everyone who believes, repents, and is baptized into Christ. You will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You will get united with God. You will become the temple that houses the Holy Spirit of God. And that's for everyone. Yet again, Jew, Gentile, male, female, pagan, you name it. Whatever other label you want to stick on, it's for everyone. You can't put it in a label because it's just for everyone. Verse 40, and with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So we don't get the particulars of this moment. We get a synopsis of what was said. And the synopsis of what was said was, save yourself from what? This corrupt generation. I think that's the other part that is going to always be true. The world is going to be corrupted. If you follow the world, it will lead you to corruption. So save yourself from this corrupt generation still rings true to me. I look at the world today and I can see all kinds of ways we are going against, specifically against the word of God. I can even see ways that we're starting to, even in our own culture, teach our children to think that are going to specifically go against the word of God. And I don't think that's a new thing. So those who received the word were baptized and there were added to the day about 3,000 souls. So we had 3,000 people who heard it, had that moment of despair, had that moment where something has to change. They repent of who they were and they are baptized and they are buried and they rise in the newness of life. And there's about 3,000 who are added that day. And they devoted themselves. What's devotion? What's devotion? Dedication. I hear whispers. Committed. Sorry. Dedicated. Committed. We usually hear that word marriages. And I mean, relationship. A lot of times the church and marriage are not too far different. That's right. So the devotion that you would have in marriage, the devotion you would have in Christ, the devotion you would have in the church. Yeah. When you get married, your life becomes intertwined with your spouse. It's no longer just your life. You're sharing it with somebody else. Their opinion matters just as much as your opinion matters. And I like that you said that, Doug, and that's true. Most of the time when we think about devotion... We think about that intimate relationship that we have with our spouse. I also would say you're devoted probably to your children, to your family. Think about the lengths you would go to to reach out to your children, to help your children in their time of need, to love on and teach your children and mentor them to become the men and women you want them to become, the men and women God want them to become. So they were devoted 
This is really important because this is, it breaks down the four main things right away that they were devoted to. The first thing they were devoted to was the apostles' teachings. What's the apostles' teachings? Do we have them? Yeah, of course we do. Tell me. What do you mean, William? It's the gospel. It's also, in my opinion, the letters of Paul, the letters of Peter, the letters of John, the history that Luke recorded. It's the New Testament. They devoted themselves. Now, they didn't have all that at this moment in time, so they had the apostles that were literally speaking and teaching, and they were going and listening to them on the regular. They were going to church on the regular. When they weren't going to church amongst themselves, they were even going into the synagogues, back to the temples, to worship God and to share the good news of the gospel. Well, they were devoted to the teachings. It also means that they took the teachings to heart. They had that same conviction that, that led them to be baptized on that day to the teachings that they were being taught. That promise. Yeah. Uh, what Peter was sharing with the people, uh, and it, it doesn't just stop with them, but for your children and those who are far off, the Gentiles, and, 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 and whoever the Lord may call. You know, when, when you start off this thing, you, you think about the 120 that was set in the church, mm -hmm. and, and people might think, well, that's it. But, but the Holy Spirit revealed that wasn't it. Yeah. And then when, when they were uh, uh, cut to the, to the heart, and, and they asked, what shall we do? And, and Peter shared what they shall do. They might have thought that was it. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that wasn't it. So it keeps going on and on and on. And I know you use the word corrupt, but perverse is also a word that That's is right. used. That's right. uh, generation. And that's, that's one of the keys that men and women today a lot of them do not ask. They, they hear the gospel, but they don't ask, what shall we do? They're not convicted. And uh, that's, that's, that's the thing that, that, that really should, should uh, shake the world up, that, that question. That's right. So I just think, uh, I think that's one thing that we need to, we need to follow. We need to understand that God, the Lord is adding to the church. We need to be the ones who carry that word. That's right. And, 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 and when we think of the condition of man, uh, you know, I know today uh, when I was calling somebody and, and, and sharing, uh, you know, it, it hurts because uh, that <laughs> sin is so deep that they don't see it and they don't want to see it. Yeah. Yeah. That's well said. <clears throat> so I guess if I had to put this into one word for the apostles' teachings is when you come to church and you become a member of the New Testament church, the first thing you become is a student of the word of God. And I've said this a bunch, and I will, this is another thing you'll never, you'll never hear me stop saying, is I will always encourage you to be in the Word of God. Be in the Word of God. 
You can read it a hundred times and something new will pop out every single time. It just happens. The word is extremely deep. God moves you through his spirit as you read it at different times in your life to see different things as well. I fully believe that. He is guiding you through his word. Now, I'm not one person that just typically when I'm having a rough day, I just flip over this, open the scripture and expect God to turn me to it. I'm not saying it's never happened either. But he wants you to be in the word. And, and if you're in the word, then you will start to be able to discern the world. That's one of the things I've been trying to talk to my own boys about recently is that when you're in the word, when you understand the word of God, when the truth is revealed to you in the word of God, it actually makes life a lot easier. You don't get into all the distractions. The world is trying to make everything confusing and difficult so you don't know what the truth is. That's part of the deception of Satan. It's part of perverting the word of God. It's part of being corrupted. You don't know what the truth is. There's a whole bunch of people out there who are not following Jesus who think they're doing the absolute right thing with their life. That's right. It's exactly what he was doing before the road to Damascus. That's right. So we have to be in the word. The word will help us discern the world. Super important. Second one, so we need to be students. We need to be students of God's word. The second one is, and the fellowship. What's that mean? They were devoted to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Participating one with another. Okay. Getting to know one another, helping one another, encouraging one another. Yeah. Sorry, it's not just a potluck. Yeah. Real relationships. And caring. That's right. Caring is the word that I would say. If you talk about fellowship, it's a deeper bond. It's a deeper bond. You guys are my family. Now, a lot of my family, my blood family, if you will, my immediate family, comes to this church. And that's a beautiful thing for me. But each one of you are also my family. And we need to not only look at it that way, but we need to treat each other that way. Like we're family. And that changes People, the relationships that we develop in the church have, have just as much impact as the word of God in our personal study. You put those two together, you have something extremely powerful that starts to take place in someone's life. I know that I'm speaking from my own experience. It wasn't just the word of God that blew my mind every time I opened it. It was the relationships of people that I saw in the church that did different, treated me different than the world. And you know, I've had a little bit of a Paul's life, and you probably have too, where at times you weren't treated the way you should have been by your brothers and sisters in Christ. That's going to happen to everybody probably as well. But think about the most powerful experiences you've had in your relationship with God as you've grown. They've probably had some time of study where the word was changing you, but also you had these relationships that you were surrounded in that were changing you and pushing you to strive to be better, to strive to, strive to become more godly, and they loved you like family. It changes. Are we devoted to the word? Let's go back to that real quick. How often are we reading it? 
Do we ever read it outside of church? If I'm the only one that ever reads you the scripture, you only know what I'm studying at the time. Are we devoted to it? Do we love God's word? Do we need it in our lives? And then, what about each other? What about each other? Are we devoted to each other? That's right, we should be. We should have a deep love for one another. That's really next to impossible to find out there. That's what's supposed to set the church apart. Yeah, go ahead. I think the purpose of that fellowship, too, it's not just a, there's a but as we bind together, it's, there's a purpose to it. We build the church together. Yeah. And that's what the fellowship is. Absolutely. Absolutely. We disciple, we grow, you know, and it keeps it from Acts 2 to 2023. That's how the gospel gets somewhere. We pass it along. But it's through that fellowship through building the church together. That's right. But it's not just in word, right? It can't just be in word. If all I do is speak it and I never live it out, my words become shallow and empty. You know, in my opinion, the greatest ministers, the greatest ministers, speakers that are ministers, because there's all kinds of different ministers out there. We're all called to be ministers. Not all of us are called to be speakers. But the greatest speakers, the reason why their words hit you differently is because you have a relationship with them. You can see the love of God that's in them. You can see the life that they live. And that's, you know, that, I think that's what sets people apart. It's all about that fellowship. For me, it's all about that fellowship. Not forgetting any of these other things as well. Okay, to the third one, the breaking of bread. So they were devoted to potlucks. We're not doing it right because we're not having a potluck every Sunday. Is that what it is? There's a lot of people who will tell you that's what it is. Or is the breaking of bread communion? That's right. That's right. They ate in their homes. That says it a little bit further down. Yeah, they definitely ate together. They definitely fellowshiped in that way as well. But they also broke bread when they all came together. Here, too, that people have come from all over the world for Pentecost and Passover. Mm-hmm. And they stayed. And so a lot of people were hosting a lot of people. Oh, yeah. And you know, I imagine going from Passover to communion to the Lord's Supper would have actually made a lot of sense. They, could have, they would have seen the power in that. They went from this time where they sacrificed the lamb and they remembered God delivering them from Egypt to a time where the lamb was sacrificed being the Messiah and God delivered them from themselves from their sin, from that which separated us from God. So I imagine it made perfect sense to them. 
And, I, and I, I've said this again. I, I, I think this is so important. But to me, this is the most important thing. I, I will never let this be, we're just eating. The church just was devoted to making sure everybody got fed every time they were together. When it talks about this breaking of bread, it talks about what we discussed in, in 1 Corinthians, when we went through 1 Corinthians, where Paul was talking about the Lord's Supper and how you were supposed to do it. How you were supposed to wait on everybody. How there was a proper way to do it. And how before you took it, you were supposed to make your relationships right with your brothers and sisters in Christ. There's a big moment to this. That's why we, who are trying to be as much like the New Testament church as physically possible 2,000 years later in this modern day, that's why we still take communion every Sunday. It's an extremely important part of your life. How do you, how do you take communion in the right way and not be thankful to God? How can you not be thankful to God when you take communion in the right way? When you think about that every single Sunday, I mean, for me, I don't, it's not like I sit there and I go through the list of my sins for the week. But I certainly think about my life and the direction it's going and where I believe God is pushing me to every single time. I also think about all my relationships with all of you and if there's something going on that needs to be fixed. And there has even been times in my time here where I have not taken communion until I fix relationships with people. Because you can be mad at somebody and not ever go back and fix something. You stop taking communion and starts messing with your relationship with God. You, don't, you won't like that very long. It'll spurn you on. But to me, that's why it's so important. That's why they were devoted to it. What more important thing to remember than that which saved us all? In prayer. Prayer. Why would they be devoted to prayer? Why should we be devoted to prayer? Or whatever you have a need for and a way to worship. Yeah. That's how we talk to God. Yeah. It's our connection. It, yeah. If you have a relationship with somebody you never talk to, that relationship is strained, isn't it? And usually the better relationship you have with somebody, the more you talk to them. The more you desire to talk to them. Now, I was telling you guys about my um, buddy from West Virginia that uh, has been having these experiences in his life that's making him think more longer and harder about God than anything I could have ever talked to him about. But, you know, one of the things that I love about him, and, and it's... Um, it's not always convenient, but he desires to speak to me. He desires to speak to me, sometimes every day. Sometimes every day. Someone I have not, I've only seen physically four or five times in the last 20 years. And it's usually right before he jumps on a cruise ship. And we'll hang out for a night before he gets on the boat with his family. But he still desires to, to talk to me, to know what's going on in my life, to share his thoughts with me, to, under, to understand what's going on with my family, to try to encourage me as we encourage one another. You know, there is a desire there that makes me love him deeper. 
And I think that's an extremely important part. It's not just that there's this relationship and we need to communicate, but, but there's also power in prayer. You know, we want this church to grow. We should pray about that. And we should pray about that regularly. You want to grow in your own relationship with God? You should pray about that and you should pray about it regularly. You got something going on in your life you need answers to, you're seeking counsel, don't just read the word, pray about it. It'll come. Maybe not in the form you want, but it will come. And prayer is extremely powerful and they devoted themselves to it not only because it was important for their relationship, their personal relationship with God, because God was answering their prayers. And God is still answering our prayers. I think about that scripture in Hebrews. I'm coming to you, Shad. I think about that scripture where he talks about what Father Jesus himself said, too. But what, what, what Father who doesn't care for his child, disciplines him. And then and Jesus said, what father, what father, when his kid asks for something to eat, gives him a stone? That's, that's the God we serve. That's our father. He loves us. He wants to hear about our lives. You know, when I pick up my boys from school, it's the same school, and it's the same teacher, and it's the same kids every single day. But I want to know what happened every day. Whether it's an extremely exciting day or whether it's a bad day, I, I want to know what happened. I want to be involved in my kids' lives. When they're with their friends and things are going on, I want to be a part of that. I want to see it. I want to experience it. I don't want them to grow up and me not be part of their life. In the same way, God is right there. He's your father. He wants that too. We got to be devoted to it. Then it says this, verse, anybody want to add anything before I move on? I'm sorry. I haven't given everybody else much time to talk. Yeah, go ahead. Any version, is there an adverb, the, in breaking of bread, breaking of the bread? Um, I don't, I don't know the answer to that question. I'd have to look. I mean, that, there's a lot of versions of the Bible. Well, maybe I can come up with that answer for you between now and Sunday. I don't have that answer right now. <clears throat> so verse 43 says, And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. So the apostles had the miraculous abilities and they were doing them on the regular and showing people that not only did they speak this amazing truth but they they were creating these experiences that people could not deny that God was attached to them and then again it says how many how many 10% 10% of the church is that what it said that's what stats say. You know that, right? Stats say, stats say that about 10% of the church does 90% of the work. That's what, I mean, I'm just telling you what the stats say. So it says all and all who believe. So how many was that? About 3,000? 
Okay, at least, that's right. All who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. They had a common purpose, and they were putting their money together for that common purpose. Not only to just take care of each other, but to further the kingdom of God. They were devoted to these things, and they were also putting their own possessions into the pot so that God's kingdom could come. So I guess you could say there's a, a contribution there as well. And then it says this, And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. So there you go. They're breaking bread in their homes. That's a little different. Now they're eating together. They're, they're attending the temple together. They're breaking bread in their homes, and they received the food with gladness and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. That's right. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's, again, it's the love of the church that should separate us from all other movements in the world. That's, you know, this is one of those things where you could point to the food pantry that we do. We, it's, we don't tell people you can get in line and come get food from us if you're a Christian. We invite them to our church. We want them to come and be part of it, but that's not um, something they have to do to receive the food. We're just doing good to people. We are sharing the love of Christ and what we've been blessed with and the hard work that goes into all of that with people who are in need. And in that way, we have favor. I can tell you right now, the phone rings more at this church for people who are wanting food and need food than any other thing that gets called at this church for. I get more calls from people who want to know when that food pantry is than anything else. And there are other organizations that have now recognized us for the work that we're doing and are even sending people our way. Sometimes they give them the wrong stuff and they show up here on a Tuesday, but the word is getting out. That's a good thing. That's a great thing. In a time where a lot of churches have cut that out of their budget because they can't afford it, we're making a difference. We're not necessarily in our richest time as a church ourselves. Go ahead, Carl. You know, Jesus grew in favor with God and man. And I, I believe also, I've experienced my own life. When I follow Christ, I grow in favor with man as well. Basically, there's some people that treat me badly, but by and large, just being kind to people makes people absolutely absolutely it's it's the armor of god that we put on every day that defends us that armor of god that we put on every day is the life that we live trying to pursue him and be as much like him as we possibly can be every day that's what the armor of god comes from that's where you can have your that's where you can defend yourself without actually defending yourself and you know not everybody's going to love you for that but the majority of people can still see that you're different. And it does make you, it makes you attractive. It makes you stand out. 
It makes you different. And that's exactly what we're called to be, is holy and set apart. So I want you to see this, because I put day by day in there on the red. And I did that on purpose. Because day by day, they were doing the work of the Lord. Day by day, they were devoting themselves to these things. Okay? Day by day, they were living their Christian life out for all to see. And because of that, because of that daily commitment to being people of God, the Lord added to their number day by day. And I really believe that this is still the promise for us. I really believe this promise never ends in the church. If we become a body that's devoted to God in this exact way, if we love each other and are willing to share with each other and willing to do everything we can to have favor with all men, that doesn't mean selling out God to win somebody's opinion, but to have favor with all men. If we're actually doing this, if we're devoted to the apostles' teaching, if we're devoted to the word of God, if we're devoted to uh, loving and caring and, and, and having fellowship with one another and being family, if we're devoted to the Lord's Supper, if we're devoted to a life of prayer, I really believe that we will grow. The problem is, is going back to those gifts of the Holy Spirit. The problem is, is there's no gift of the Holy Spirit that makes you a better pew filler. There's no gift of the Holy Spirit that allows you to get in and out of church without anybody noticing. There's no gift of the Holy Spirit that does not make you a more active member in the church. And I think one of the reasons why you see that the church numbers in general across America are falling, if you want to get really specific, even in, in our own brotherhood, our numbers are falling at just as good a rate as everybody else's is because we might do one of these parts well. We might do two of these parts well. But us as a body, us, us, us as a whole, we have issues with being devoted to those things. To really living out a life that sets us apart from the rest of the world. And I think part of that is just because it's of who we are. But I also think part of it is because it takes a lot of a commitment. It takes a lot of time and effort. It takes a lot of patience to deal with some of y'all. I know some of y'all are thinking about that about me too. That's okay. <laughs> but that's what we have to do. That's what's going to change your friends' lives. That's what's going to change your family members' lives. That's what's going to change this community's lives is when we become devoted to the same things that the New Testament church was devoted to and we actually live it out day by day. Not, not once on Sundays. Maybe for extra credit you come on Wednesday night. <laughs> and when, yeah, That's true. Some of y'all are here all the time, man. I'll tell you that. Go ahead, Susan. You were talking about things that you do with your children. Yeah. And 
bring it up, but we were struggling before COVID, but when COVID hit, people now justify not getting involved based yeah. on that. We have to work twice as hard to have faith that God at this point will make us come together. We have to have that fellowship. And our you know, people work remote, that's great. They worship remote, and so now they're talking. The church cannot grow if we look at that as an example, we can't. Yeah, I'll even add to that. Go through, go through the scriptures and see how many times Paul says he can't wait to come and see somebody face to face. There, there is an element that even Paul recognizes that cannot be replaced with in person. So, you know, cyber is good for um, a lot of things, but it cannot replace us actually being together. Um, I think that's a good point. So what stands out? This is real quick. We have to be quick. But we started a few minutes late, so we're going to go a couple minutes over. Um, what stands out to you as important and relevant for us today from Acts chapter 2? What stands out that's important and relevant for a church in the 2000s that's trying to model after the church of the New Testament? Lord's Supper. Is that what you said? Breaking of bread? Yeah. Lord's Supper. Loving one another. Relationship. Commitment. Absolutely. Yeah. Baptism. Doug? I think the all and everybody that you pointed out several times is part of it too. It's not the six people that are online, it's the it's the eighties only who see Sunday mornings, or maybe every other Sunday morning. Mm-hmm. Um, they're part of the all. Mm-hmm. That's right. All in. All in doesn't just is not that we're not just talking about one person being all in. We all gotta be all in. Anybody else? All right. Well, I think that was a good discussion to uh, get us going on this idea of the New Testament church. We'll be continuing it for a few more weeks and um, hope you've been enjoying it. A lot of it is definitely foundational, but it's something we need to hear over and over and over again as we encourage one another to become more and more like Christ. So thank you so much for coming and we'll, uh, we'll see you on Sunday.